Good morning. Today is the 15th of March, 2019. We'll use the Confession of Sin found on page 79 of the Book of Common Prayer. Dearly beloved, we have come together in the presence of Almighty God to set forth God's praise, to hear God's holy word, and to ask for ourselves and on behalf of others those things that are necessary for our life and our salvation, and so that we may prepare ourselves in heart and mind to worship him. Let us kneel in silence and with penitent and obedient hearts confess our sins, that we may obtain forgiveness by God's infinite goodness and mercy. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, have mercy on us. Forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen. O God, let our mouth proclaim your praise and your glory all the day long. Praise to the holy and undivided Trinity, one God, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. O come, let us worship. Alleluia. O God, you are my God. From break of day, I seek you. O God, you are my God. Eagerly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a barren and dry land where there is no water. Therefore I have gazed upon you in your holy place, that I might behold your power and your glory. For your love and kindness is better than life itself. My lips shall give you praise. So will I bless you as long as I live, and lift up my hands in your name. My soul is content, as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my helper, and under the shadow of your wings I will rejoice. My soul clings to you. Your right hand holds me fast. O oh God, you are my God. From break of day I seek you. Praise to the holy and undivided Trinity, one God, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Psalm 119, verses 49 through 72. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my distress, that your promise gives me life. The arrogant utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. 
When I think of your ordinances from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked, those who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs wherever I make my home. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me, for I have kept your precepts. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I implore your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think of your ways, I turn my feet to your decrees. I hurry and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous ordinances. I am a companion. <laughs> Sorry. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was humbled, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant smear, with, smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their hearts are fat and gross, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was humbled, so that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth t is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Praise to the holy and undivided Trinity, one God as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. A reading from the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 16, through chapter 5, verse 8. The righteous who have died will condemn the ungodly who are living, and youth that is quickly perfected will condemn the prolonged old age of the unrighteous. For they will see the end of the wise, and will not understand what the Lord purposed for them, and for what he kept them safe. The unrighteous will see, and will have contempt for them. But the Lord will laugh them to scorn. After this they will become dishonored corpses, and an outrage among the dead forever, because he will dash them speechless to the ground, and shake them from the foundations. They will be left utterly dry and barren, and they will suffer anguish, and the memory of them will perish. They will come with dread when their sins are reckoned up, and their lawless deeds will convict them to their face. Then the righteous will stand with great confidence in the presence of those who have oppressed them, and those who make light of their labors. When the unrighteous see them, they will be shaken with dreadful fear, and they will be amazed at the unexpected salvation of the righteous. They will speak to one another in repentance, and in anguish of spirit they will groan and say, These are persons whom we once held in derision and made a byword of reproach, fools that we were. We thought that their lives were madness and that their end was without honor. Why have they been numbered among the children of God, and why is their lot among the saints? So it was we who strayed from the way of truth, 
and the light of righteousness did not shine upon us, and the sun did not rise upon us. We took our fill of the paths of lawlessness and destruction, and we journeyed through trackless deserts, but the way of the Lord we have not known. What has our arrogance profited us, and what good has our boasted wealth brought us? Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Thanks be to God. Canticle G, found on page 34 of Enriching Our Worship 1, a song of Ezekiel. I will take you from among all nations and gather you from all lands to bring you home. I will sprinkle clean water upon you and purify you from false gods and uncleanness. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit put within you. I will take the stone heart from your chest and give you a heart of flesh. I will help you walk in my laws and cherish my commandments and do them. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Praise to the holy and undivided Trinity, one God, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. reading from Colossians chapter 1 verse 24 through chapter 2 verse 7. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ, For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. For I want you to know how much I am struggling for you, and for those in Lodica, and for all who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love, so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding, and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you are taught abounding in thanksgiving. Hear what the Spirit is saying to God's people. Thanks be to God. Canticle P, found on page 38 of Enriching Our Worship 1. A Song of the Spirit. Behold, I am coming soon, says the Lord and bringing my reward with me, to give to everyone according to their deeds. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who do God's commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city through the gates. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for all the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright morning star. Come, say the spirit and the bride. Come, let each hero reply. Come forward, you who are thirsty. Let those who desire take the water of life as a gift. Praise to the holy and undivided Trinity, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 38. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who begs from you, and if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, and you will be the children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap, for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let's affirm our faith together with the Apostles' Creed, found on page 96 of the Book of Common Prayer. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. 
The Lord be with you, and also with you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial, and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. We'll use the suffrages on page 42 of Enriching Our Worship 1. Help us, O God our Savior. Deliver us and forgive us our sins. Look upon your congregation. Give to your people the blessing of peace. Declare your glory among the nations and your wonders among all peoples. Do not let the oppressed be shamed and turned away. Never forget the lives of your poor. Continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your favor to those who are true of heart. Satisfy us by your loving kindness in the morning. So shall we rejoice and be glad all the days of our life. Generous God, we give you thanks for your beloved Jesus Christ, in whom you have shared the beauty and pain of human life. Look with compassion upon all for whom we pray, and strengthen us to be your instruments of healing in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty and everlasting God, by whose spirit the whole body of your faithful people is governed and sanctified, receive our supplications and prayers which we offer before you for all members of your holy church, that in their vocation and ministry they may truly and devoutly serve you. Through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Now is our time for personal prayers and intercessions. Um, I have several beloved ones who are ill right now, and that is why I used a prayer for healing in place of the collect. There is so much sickness in the world, and there is no safety from sickness. There is only, in my opinion, the offering up of sickness and pain to God. And all I know is that God is faithful to transform. I don't know or understand why there is so much sickness or why precious young people fall ill.
but I do know that when we invite God in, God is there with us. I'm going to pause and pray for my people and then I am going to read you someone else's words on the scripture because I think he says it better than I do or could at this moment. So I'm going to pause and be right back. All right, I'm going to read to you from chapter 5 of The Powers That Be Theology for a New Millennium by Walter Wink. Chapter 5 is entitled Jesus' Third Way, and it has a new way of thinking about this passage that we've read in the gospel, um, Luke 6, 27 through about 36, and, um, and also the corresponding teaching in Matthew. He actually references Matthew primarily, but they are, I mean, it is the same recounting, just told by Matthew or by Luke, I think the May the Holy Spirit show us something through this. But this was very eye-opening to me as a third way to think about it because the binary way that we've been taught to think about it in our culture is, in my opinion, insufficient. So you can either fast forward or settle in for a good listen. Um, Let me see. I might try to just read the whole chapter. We'll see. Many otherwise devout Christians simply dismiss Jesus' teaching about nonviolence out of hand as as impractical idealism, and with good reason. Turn the other cheek has come to imply a passive, doormat-like quality that has made the Christian way seem cowardly and complicit in the face of injustice. Resist not evil seems to break the back of all opposition to evil and to counsel submission. Going the second mile has become a platitude, meaning nothing more than extend yourself, and appears to encourage collaboration with the oppressor. Jesus' teaching, viewed this way, is impractical, masochistic, and even suicidal, an invitation to bullies and spouse batterers to wipe up the floor with their supine Christian victims. Jesus never displayed that kind of passivity. Whatever the source of the misunderstanding, such distortions are clearly neither in Jesus nor his teaching, which, in context, is one of the most revolutionary political statements ever uttered. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Matthew 5, 38 through 41. See also Luke 6, 29. The traditional interpretation of do not resist an evildoer has been non-resistance to evil. An odd conclusion, given the fact that on every occasion, Jesus himself resisted evil with every fiber of his being. The 5th century theologian Augustine argued that the gospel teaches non-resistance, and therefore declared that a Christian must not attempt self-defense. However, he noted, 
If someone is attacking my neighbor, then the love commandment requires me to defend my neighbor by force of arms if necessary. With that deft stroke, Augustine opened the door to the just war theory, the military defense of the Roman Empire and the use of torture and capital punishment. Following his lead, Christians have ever since been justifying wars fought for nothing more than national interest as just. Curiously enough, some pacifists have also bought the non-resistance interpretation and therefore have rejected nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience as coercive and in violation of the law of Christ. But the gospel does not teach non-resistance to evil. Jesus counsels resistance, but without violence. The Greek word translated resist in Matthew 5:39 is antistenai, meaning literally to stand, stenai, against, anti. What translators have overlooked is that antistenai is most often used in the Greek version of the Old Testament as a technical term for warfare. It describes the way opposing armies would march toward each other until their ranks met. Then they would take a stand, that is, fight. Ephesians 6.13 uses precisely this imagery. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand, anti-stenai, on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm, stenai. The image is not of a punch-drunk boxer somehow managing to stay on his feet but of soldiers standing their ground, refusing to flee. In short, antistenai means more here than simply to resist evil. It means to resist violently, to revolt or rebel, to engage in an armed ins insurrection. The Bible translators working in the hire of King James on what, on what came to be known as the King James Version knew that the king did not want people to conclude that they had any recourse against his or any other sovereign's tyranny. James had explicitly commissioned a new translation of the Bible because of what he regarded as seditious, dangerous, and traitorous tendencies in the marginal notes printed in the Geneva Bible, which included endorsement of the right to disobey a tyrant. Therefore, the public had to be made to believe that there are two alternatives, and only two, flight or fight. And Jesus is made to command us, according to these king's men, to resist not. Jesus appears to authorize monarchical absolutism. Submission is the will of God, and most modern translations have meekly followed in that path. Jesus is not telling us to submit to evil, but to refuse to oppose it on its own terms. We are not to let the opponent dictate the methods of our opposition. He is urging us to transcend both passivity and violence by finding a third way, one that is at once assertive and yet nonviolent. The correct translation would be the one still preserved in the earliest renditions of this saying found in the New Testament epistles. Do not repay evil for evil. Romans 12:17, 1 Thessalonians 5:15 and 1 Peter 3:9. The scholar's version of Matthew 5:39a is superb. Do, don't react violently against the one who is evil. The examples that follow confirm this reading. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Matthew 5:39b. 
I would insert here to the verse from our reading, Luke 6, 29. You are probably imagining a blow with the right fist, but such a blow would fall on the left cheek. To hit the right cheek with a fist would require the left hand. But the left hand could be used only for unclean tasks. At Qumran, a Jewish religious community of Jesus' day, to gesture with the left hand meant exclusion from the meeting and penance for 10 days. To grasp this, you must physically try it. How would you hit the other's right cheek with your right hand? If you have tried it, you will know. The only feasible blow is a backhand. The backhand was not a blow to injure, but to insult, humiliate, degrade. It was not administered to an equal, but to an inferior. Masters backhanded slaves, husbands, wives, parents, children, Romans, Jews. The whole point of the blow was to force someone who was out of line back into place. Note Jesus' audience. If anyone strikes you, these are people used to being thus degraded. He is saying to them, refuse to accept this kind of treatment anymore. If they backhand you, turn the other cheek. Now you really need to physically enact this to see the problem. By turning the cheek, the servant makes it impossible for the master to use the backhand again. His nose is in the way. And anyway, it's like telling a joke twice. If it didn't work the first time, it simply won't work. The left cheek now offers a perfect target for a blow with the right fist, but only equals fought with fists, as we know from Jewish sources. And the last thing the master wishes to do is to establish this underling's equality. This act of defiance renders the master incapable of asserting his dominance in this relationship. He can have the slave beaten, but he can no longer cow him. By turning the cheek then, the inferior is saying, I'm a human being, just like you. I refuse to be humiliated any longer. I'm your equal. I'm a child of God. I won't take it anymore. Such defiance is no way to avoid trouble. Meek acquiescence is what the master wants. Such cheeky behavior may call down a flogging or worse but the point has been made. The powers that be have lost their power to make people submit. And when large numbers begin behaving thus, and Jesus was addressing a crowd, you have a social revolution on your hands. In that world of honor and shaming, the superior has been rendered impotent to instill shame in a subordinate. He has been stripped of his power to dehumanize the other. As Gandhi taught, the first principle of nonviolent action is that of non-cooperation with everything humiliating. How different this is from the usual view that this passage teaches us to turn the other cheek so our batterer can simply clobber us again. How often that interpretation has been fed to battered wives and children, and it was never what Jesus intended in the least. To such victims, he advises, stand up for yourselves, defy your masters, assert your humanity, but don't answer the oppressor in kind. Find a new third way that is neither cowardly submission nor violent reprisal.
Jesus' second example of assertive nonviolence is set in a court of law. A creditor has taken a poor man to court over an unpaid loan. Only the poorest of the poor were subjected to such treatment. Deuteronomy 24, 10 through 13, provided that a creditor could take as collateral for a loan a poor person's long outer robe, but it had to be returned each evening, so the poor man would have something in which to sleep. Jesus is not advising people to add to their disadvantage by renouncing justice altogether, as so many commentators have suggested. He is telling impoverished debtors who have nothing left but the clothes on their backs to use the system against itself. Indebtedness was a plague in first century Palestine. Jesus' parables are full of debtors struggling to salvage their lives. Heavy debt, however, was not a national calamity that had a natural calamity that had overtaken the incompetent. It was the direct consequence of Roman imperial policy. Emperors taxed the wealthy heavily to fund their wars. The rich naturally sought non-liquid investments to hide their wealth. Land was best, but it was ancestrally owned and passed down over generations, and no peasant would voluntarily relinquish it. However, exorbitant interest, 25 to 250%, could be used to drive landowners ever deeper into debt. And debt, coupled with the high taxation required by Herod Antipas to pay Rome tribute, created the economic leverage to pry Galilean peasants loose from their land. By the time of Jesus, we see this process already far advanced, Large estates owned by absentee landlords, managed by stewards, and worked by tenant farmers, day laborers, and slaves. It is no accident that the first act of the Jewish revolutionaries in 66 Common Era was to burn the temple treasury, where the record of debts was kept. It is to this situation that Jesus speaks. His hearers are the poor if anyone should sue you. They share a rankling hatred for a system that subjects them to humiliation by stripping them of their lands, their goods, and finally, even their outer garments. Why then does Jesus counsel them to give over their undergarments as well? This would mean stripping off all their clothing and marching out of court stark naked. Nakedness was taboo in Judaism, and shame fell less on the naked party than on the person viewing or causing the nakedness. By stripping, the debtor has brought shame on the creditor. Imagine the guffaws this saying must have evoked. There stands the creditor, covered with shame, the poor debtor's outer garment in the one hand, his undergarment in the other. The tables have suddenly been turned on the creditor. The debtor has no hope, had no hope of winning the case. The law was entirely in the creditor's favor. But the poor man has transcended this attempt to humiliate him. He has risen above shame. At the same time, he has registered a stunning protest against the system that created his debt. He has said in effect, you want my robe? Here, take everything. Now you've got all I have except my body. Is that what you'll take next? Imagine the debtor leaving the court naked. His friends and neighbors aghast inquire what happened. He explains, 
They join his growing procession, which now resembles a victory parade. This is guerrilla theater. The entire system by which debtors are oppressed has been publicly unmasked. The creditor is revealed to be not a legitimate money lender, but a party to the reduction of an entire social class to landlessness and destitution. This unmasking is not simply punitive since it offers the creditor a chance to see, perhaps for the, fir for the first time in his life, what his practices cause and to repent. The powers that be literally stand on their dignity. Nothing defeats them more effectively than deft lampooning. By refusing to be awed by their power, the powerless are emboldened to seize the initiative, even where structural change is not immediately possible. This message, far from counseling an unattainable otherworldly perfection, is a practical strategic measure for empowering the oppressed. It is being lived out all over the world today by previously powerless people ready to take their history into their own hands. Shortly before the fall of political apartheid in South Africa, police descended on a squatter's camp they had long wanted, wanted to demolish. They gave the few women there five minutes to gather their possessions and then the bulldozers would level their shacks. The women, apparently sensing the residual puritanical streak in rural Afrikaners, stripped naked before the bulldozers. The police turned and fled. So far as I know, the camp still stands. Jesus' teaching on nonviolence provides a hint of how to take on the entire system by unmasking its essential cruelty and burlesquing its pretensions to justice. Those who listen will no longer be treated as sponges to be squeezed dry by the rich. They can accept the laws as they stand, push them to absurdity, and reveal them for what they have become. They can strip naked, walk out before their fellows, and leave the creditors and the whole economic edifice they represent stark naked. I'm going to skip the third example of the second mile, um, partly because it's not referenced in Luke's telling of this story or recounting of this event, um, however you want to put that. But I'm going to skip ahead. I'm on page 109 now of The Powers of Be. To those whose lifelong pattern has been to cringe before their masters, Jesus offers a way to liberate themselves from servile actions and a servile mentality. And he asserts that they can do this before there is a revolution. There's no need to wait until Rome is defeated, peasants have land, or slaves are freed. They can begin to behave with dignity and recovered humanity now, even under the unchanged conditions of the old order. Jesus' sense of divine immediacy has social implications. The reign of God is already breaking into the world, and it comes not as an imposition from on high, but is the leaven slowly causing the dough to rise? See Matthew 13:33. Jesus' teaching on nonviolence is thus integral to his proclamation of the dawning of the reign of God. Here was indeed a way to resist the powers that be without being made over into their likeness. I'm going to say that again. 
here was indeed a way to resist the powers that be without being made over into their likeness. Jesus did not endorse armed revolution. It is not hard to see why. In the conditions of first century Palestine, violent revolution against the Romans would, po would prove catastrophic. But he did lay the foundations for a social revolution. As biblical scholar Richard A. Horsley has pointed out, and a social revolution becomes political when it reaches a critical threshold of acceptance. This, in fact, did happen to the Roman Empire as the Christian church overcame it from below. Nor were peasants and slaves in a position to transform the economic system by frontal assault. But they could begin to act from an already recovered dignity and freedom. They could create within the shell of the old society the foundations of God's domination-free order. They could begin living as if the reign of God were already arriving. To an oppressed people, Jesus is saying, Do not continue to acquiesce in your oppression by the powers, but do not react violently to it either. Rather, find a third way, a way that is neither submission nor assault, fight nor fl flight nor fight, a way that can secure your human dignity and begin to change the power equation even now before the revolution. Turn your cheek, thus indicating to the one who backhands you that his attempts to shame you into servility have failed. Strip naked and parade out of court, thus taking the momentum of the law and the whole debt economy and flipping them, jujitsu-like, in a burlesque of legality. Walk a second mile surprising the occupation troops by placing them in jeopardy with their superiors. In short, take the law and push it to the point of absurdity. These are, of course, not rules to be followed legalistically, but examples to spark an infinite variety of creative responses in new and changing circumstances. They break the cycle of humiliation with humor and even ridicule, exposing the injustice of the system. They recover for the poor a modicum of initiative that can force the oppressor to see them in a new light. Jesus is not advocating nonviolence merely as a technique for outwitting the enemy, but as a just means of oppressing as a <laughs> as a just means of opposing the enemy in a way that holds open the possibility of the enemy's becoming just also. Both sides must win. We are summoned to pray for our enemy's transformation and to respond to ill treatment with a love that is not only godly, but also from God. The logic of Jesus' examples in Matthew 5:39b through 41, and I would say in our reading also, Luke 6, 27 through 36, goes beyond inaction and overreaction to a new response, fired in the crucible of love that promises to liberate the oppressed from evil even as it frees the oppressor from sin. Do not react violently to evil. Do not counter evil in kind. Do not let evil dictate the terms of your opposition. Do not let violence lead you to mirror your opponent. This forms the revolutionary principle that Jesus articulates as the basis for nonviolently engaging the powers. Jesus, in short, abhors both passivity and violence. He articulates out of the history of his own people's struggles a way by which evil can be opposed without being mirrored. The oppressor resisted without being emulated. 
and the enemy neutralized without being destroyed. Those who have lived by Jesus' words, Leo Tolstoy, Mohandas Gandhi, Muriel Lester, Martin Luther King Jr., Dorothy Day, Cesar Chavez, Hildegard and Jean Gosmar, Mared Corgan Maguire, Adolfo Perez Esquivel, Da Aung San Suu Kyi, and countless others less well-known point us to a new way of confronting evil whose potential for personal and social transformation we are only beginning to grasp today. Thank you for bearing with me through that long reading. Um, I think that's all that I am going to say today. Again, that's Walter Wink, Chapter 5 of his book, The Powers That Be, Theology for a New Millennium. I highly recommend it. It really um, got me to thinking in new ways, which is always, um, I think, approaching from a new perspective is always a good thing. And it was certainly liberating to me. I think I've talked to you guys before about this, that some of these verses have really been taken and twisted and used to keep people in abusive situations, um, keep them entrapped in the powers that be, right? And so may we all be liberated from all oppression, the impression of spirit or soul or body, heart or mind or will. May we, with the power of Christ, be freed. Amen. Let's go ahead and close up our time together with the general thanksgiving found on page 101 of the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life but above all for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And, we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips but in our lives. By giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all ages. Amen. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplication to you. And you have promised through your well-beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will be in the midst of them. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth, and in the age to come life everlasting. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to God from generation to generation in the church, and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. We live without fear. Our Creator has made us holy, has always protected us, and loves us as a good mother loves her children. We go now in peace to follow the good road, and may God's blessing be with us always. Amen.